This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. I'm absolutely calling on the Deputy Prime Minister to pay attention to his own report. Growers work from sun up to sun down, sir. Countrywide. We need to speak to these growers one o'clock in the morning. And to actually act on behalf of the farmers. They're going to get it from the Yanks or the French or whoever. So let's get our foot in the door and let's be the first. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello and welcome to Countrywide. I'm your host, Bridget Herman. Today on the show, using soil to capture carbon. It's been the talk at an international climate summit. And you can now buy Australian-grown garlic all year round. But it hasn't been an easy road to get there. And do you know where your dairy foods come from? For more and more Aussies, those products are actually coming from overseas. You know, that, that price difference between Australian dairy products compared to the international products um, has, has had a part to play there too. That's coming up in the next half hour. But first, let's talk weather. Tropical cyclone Jasper has formed this week east of Australia and it is approaching the Queensland coast. In the far north of the state at Innisfail, a banana farmer says he's putting the lessons learnt from previous cyclones into action. Banana trees are especially susceptible to wind damage because of their large leaves. In previous cyclones that have hit the Innisfail region, including 2011's Category 5 tropical cyclone Yazi, caused widespread damage to banana crops. Tropicana Banana Farm Manager Gavin Eilers says early preparation work will give the trees their best chance of weathering the storm. Yeah, look, Tropicana's definitely got preparations going on prior to the cyclone, hopefully not coming, but we can't wait for that. We're, we're not taking any risks, so we'll be packing as much of the full and ready fruit as we can as possible. And uh, we've got a deleafing program going on with some workers, and we're just trying to deleaf as many as the younger trees as we can. In case the cyclone does come, we can at least save those. So deleafing is basically just chopping off leaves off the banana tree, and we do that on the younger trees rather than the older trees because if a cyclone does come the bigger trees just physically cannot be saved all the bunches so we we concentrate on anything half grown and a bit under and that involves just cutting the leaves of the tree off more than usual so when the winds come it's got less resistant on the tree and we hopefully save more trees that way so are you picking more bananas than you normally would um no not really no we're just sort of cutting everything that is ready yeah, so normally we have a fortnightly cut on half the farm. Rather than that, we're, we're cutting the whole farm. Mm-hmm. Are you worried then that there might be a glut on the market as, as farmers sort of, I suppose, cut as many banana bunches off as they can pre-cyclone? Oh, I really don't think there'll be a glut, no, because if there happens to be a cyclone, they're going to be gobbled up in no time at all. So, no, it'll be if there is any sort of extra fruit, it'll be very short-lived. You, I understand you've been a banana farmer at Tropicana for a while. Has has the management of banana farms pre-cyclone changed in, in recent years, particularly, you know, after Cyclone Yazi that did did devastate the, the Innisfail region? Yeah, definitely. It's it's changed the, the growing side and managing side of the farm these days. We're a lot smarter and we've got better plans in place. And, yeah, so when something gets a bit close and a bit, yeah, like it is now, we, we get a bit toey and we start preparation a bit earlier. We'd rather get on top rather than chase our tails. Yeah, that's for sure. 
how big is the farm at Innisfail and do you expect that you'll be able to get all the bunch cutting and, and deleafing works done, you know, in the few days before the cyclone does arrive? Um, look, no, we, we physically can't get around all of it, no. There's two farms on the Innisfail coast. There's about 500 acres between the two farms. So physically, no, we can't. So we just really concentrate on the paddocks that we know we can save rather than the whole of the farm. Yeah, I just hope the cyclone doesn't come at all and we've all just wasted a couple of days' work and we can continue on and have a nice Christmas. That'd be lovely. Innisfail Banana Farm Manager Gavin Eilers. Keeping with the weather, the heat has crept in on most parts of Australia now, but it's following a widespread drenching of rain. In recent weeks, there were big thunderstorms, tropical-style downfalls and, in some places, even flooding. Now, this has all come while we're officially in an El Nino weather pattern. El Nino is usually the one that delivers us droughts, and La Nina is the cycle that we usually associate with rain. So, all this wet weather has come as a bit of an unexpected surprise. Senior lecturer in climate science at the University of Melbourne, Andrew King, explains to Sarah Morris that El Ninos can vary. We had quite a dry start to spring, and it, it, some of you might remember that September and October was really quite warm and dry. Mm. But yeah, November was um, uh, surprisingly wet, uh, particularly in New South Wales and, and Queensland and parts of Victoria. Should we be surprised by this? Because El Nino is usually associated with dry weather. We haven't had that dry weather in the last month. Are we in a normal El Nino or a kind of rogue one? Well, El Ninos actually vary quite a lot in terms of what they mean for Australia. Um, El Nino has quite big effects on on regional climates around the world because it shifts weather systems around a bit. But because we're not, you know, right next to the the central and eastern Pacific, when we have El Nino, it still means slightly different things for our climate. Typically, it's drier than normal and warmer than normal. But um, there's quite a lot of variety between El Ninos. Um, So, for example, there was a really big El Nino in the late 90s. There was quite a wet spring in in that El Nino uh, summer as well. So it does vary a lot. Sometimes it's drier. It's more often drier than it is wetter. In this case, it's at least the last month it's been quite wet. Are we seeing a, a different pattern on our sea surface temperatures this time around than we've seen in other El Ninos? Normally when we have El Nino conditions, we have cooler sea surface temperatures around Australia, which uh, means there's kind of a bit less energy and a bit mes- less moisture available for rainfall to occur. This time around, it's been, it, that hasn't really been the case. Uh, sea surface temperatures are quite high around Australia. And they're particularly high to the southeast of Australia at the moment. And that's probably fed into uh, the particularly heavy rain that uh, the south coast of New South Wales had a week or two ago. Now. Yeah, exactly. Going forward, though, I, I, I know a lot of farmers and I think some are on one hand cranky. They're cranky that there was all this talk about El Nino. They went out, they sold their cattle, they got ready for drought. They're obviously all pretty scarred from the drought we had a couple of years ago. Then the rain came. Uh, and so now they're thinking, oh, this you know, was a storm in a teacup, so to speak. But I'm wondering if they might still have done the right thing because we've got a few months of summer yet to go. Could we see that the dry weather kick in in the next couple of months? It's certainly possible. El Nino tends to have its biggest influence in spring and um, in summer it's we have so much rainfall that comes from storms that it's kind of hard to tell like you just need a few storms in the right places and then you've got above average rainfall in, in 
you know, much of Australia is so dry that that's, that would constitute like a, a wet, a wetter than average summer if you just have the, a few storms in the right place. So it's hard to tell. Yeah, it, it's possible that droughts may return. Whilst the rain has kind of dominated the last few weeks, we did have very dry conditions in September and October. And overall, spring was actually slightly drier than average. So the outlook was actually correct. It was just the rain really came at the at the end of spring. Got you. Um, and yeah, kind of brought up the, the average for spring close to the, the seasonal average. Do you think so, also the media's obsession with El Nino and La Nina um, plays into perhaps building up a, a feeling of something coming? And, and we had such shocking droughts in the, in the past couple of years. I guess we're all scared it was coming again. But do we perhaps need to be a little bit more measured with some of our reporting of the, the weather patterns that are upcoming? I think, I mean, El Nino and La Nina have a big influence on our climate. And yeah, we did have a big drought in the lead up to 2019 mm. when we had the fires. And you know, I think a lot of people were, were concerned we might see something like that again. Um, and then, of course, we had very wet conditions with the La Ninas. I, I do think, like, we always have variability in our weather and climate in Australia. We do have droughts and floods and it's not all tied to El Nino and La Nina. Just El Nino kind of weights the odds towards having drier conditions. La Nina really weights the odds towards having wetter than average conditions. But there are, you know, other factors at play. And you just need, because Australia is quite a dry continent, if you just have a few weather systems cross a region, you can have quite a lot of rain. University of Melbourne's Andrew King speaking to Sarah Morris. I'm Bridget Herman, bringing you all the stories about what's on your dinner plate. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Well, soil and the role it plays in the big climate change debate was centre stage at the COP28 Global Conference this week. Storing carbon in the soil is one way to reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, but soil is still being cleared for cropping and urbanisation, and that's releasing more carbon, not storing it. David Clawton reports. There are a lot of Australians at COP28 as Australia positions itself to host the next big event. And one of them is soil expert Budiman Minister from the University of Sydney. He's optimistic about the potential for soil to store more carbon, but he thinks there's a long way to go before that can be achieved. Agriculture is still a large contribution of greenhouse gas emissions because of either land use change or deforestation or conversion to to uh, cropping and also uh, fertilizer application. That, uh, so we're not just talking about carbon dioxide, but it's also about nitrous oxide that is from the nitrogen fertilizer and also methane that is to do from the livestock and also from the paddy, paddy field cultivation. Australia is a world leader when it comes to sustainable farming systems, having shifted away from tilling the soil in the last 20 years and set up systems like biodiversity schemes to encourage farmers to protect the environment. But the rest of the world is a long way behind. Yeah, unfortunately, even in Europe, the uptake of uh, no-till is still very low. So they're still talking that uh, they're still encouraging farmers to adopt no-till practices so tilling the soil uh, often means that you break up the aggregates, break up the soil, and that expose the soil to more oxidation. And, and furthermore, I think it's, it's not only the tilling the soil, but if you 
remove everything and you till the soil, you are exposing the soil more to oxidize or your organic matter decompose faster. So you lose much more carbon in the soil and exposing the soil also means that the, the stability of your soil is gets weaker. So when it's this rainfall, then there's it, the soil is more prone to erosion. With the alarm bells ringing, Budiman Maniste says agriculture needs to aim for net zero by 2030. We should be uh, thinking of ways to do things better. So, I mean, the, there are options already out there. So it's a matter of scaling up and not doing the the business as usual anymore, but start thinking about how, how are we going to agriculture, even agriculture itself have to reach a net zero pledge to net reach net zero by 2030. The problem is farmers need to produce commercial crops and that often results in crops that produce big yields and farming systems that use a lot of fertilisers and chemicals. That needs to change, according to Budiman Maniste. We can't just look at soils as a medium for for just uh, growing, either for growing crops or medium just for storing carbon because uh, we have to start quantifying. We have to understand that how how soil is, is uh, contributing for the whole ecosystems, including biodiversity, including water, including uh, climate regulations. So, for example, the government is talking about the setting aside 30% of the soil to restore degradation. So we need to look at what are what are the options, what are the functionality of the soils that can that can provide. And I suppose at these big conferences, the urgency of the of the need to do something to address climate change, for example, uh, is very present because that's when they usually release reports telling us that actually we're we've run out of time. You know, that is that the sense you're getting this time around? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, it, it's it's been since I think Seoul has been talked since uh, the Kyoto Protocol, and 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 I think there's a well, there there are progress, but the people are still a bit, uh, yeah, it's it's a bit slow. But I think that uh, now now I think the there's at least there is a there's agreement from this COP twenty eight about the how to make food system, how to, to look at the food system and agriculture more sustainable. There is a, there is a will, but there's still a lack of uh, details of how, how, how or target on how should we achieve this. So I think that uh, countries uh, need to start looking at options and start, uh, start target, like, uh, for example, net zero in agriculture by 2030, which many countries countries are pledged off. I think that's one way of uh, addressing to, to see the urgency that we need to do something now. Back in Australia, some big corporates are working with farmers to help them change their practices to be more sustainable and to reduce emissions. Charles Sturt University is collaborating with six companies, including Kellanova and Pepsi, to form the Cool Soil Initiative. The project league, Dr Cassandra Schaefe, explained to Tina Quinn what they're trying to do. So the whole idea behind the Cool Soil Initiative is that it actually provides a means of connecting farmers on ground, understanding what they're doing well and how we can support them in doing better, and then through to the corporate players who actually purchase that grain. Basically all companies now are looking to demonstrate that they're sourcing from sustainable farming systems and that they're they're looking to support farmers on ground. A key part of that is around... um, you know, how do we sustain diversity in our cropping systems? You know, the ability to to grow, you know, a really nice diverse rotation over a number of years. And a key part of that is being able to include legumes in our system. 
we know legumes have a key role in fixing nitrogen from the atmosphere and they also have a key role in supporting uh, ongoing fertility um, into subsequent crops. It's one small project of many that will be needed across the ag sector if farmers are going to get to net zero anytime soon. David Clawton with that report. You're listening to Countrywide. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. Well, are you a fan of garlic? Consumers can now buy Australian garlic all year round, reducing the need for cheap imported products. But it's been decades of hard work for farmers of the notoriously difficult-to-grow crop. Ellie Bradfield reports. It's been a lifetime of work. I was a young man with black hair and now I'm an old man with white hair, so it's taken literally a lifetime. So when I first started growing garlic, probably more than 90% of all our garlic, 95% even, was actually coming from overseas, predominantly or mainly from China. Australian people always wanted Australian produce because it was grown locally, they trusted it, etc. Australian Garlic Producers CEO Nick Diamantopoulos knew there was a gap in the market, but when it came to closing it, the list of challenges felt endless. Garlic was being produced in countries where labour was very, very cheap, and Australian labour was nowhere near cheap, and especially now it's getting more and more and more expensive. And so garlic is very labour intensive. So these were all the challenges. But the biggest of all challenges, I feel, was probably the lack of garlic seed, garlic know-how, virus-free garlic varieties, having different varieties that work in different areas. Look, I suppose I was just lucky that I was young and probably naive at the time, because if you looked at it today, it wouldn't make good commercial sense. And the challenge was just huge. It was just a massive task. So when you're young, you're sort of enthusiastic and, you know, take things a little bit lighter. And But it just involved a lot of crop failures, a lot of disasters, a lot of learnings. As an industrial chemist by trade, he was able to bring in different garlic varieties from around the world. Back then, it was a lot easier to import nursery stock and get varieties into the country. It's become very, very difficult of late. Slowly, we started to grow, you know, crops with very lower yields, and then slowly started to, you know, improve those yields and identify different varieties. And here we are today. But, you know, hey, look, it's taken 25, 30 years to get to where we are. While growers experimented and scaled up, Australian garlic paste played a role in filling consumer demand. They were very patient. We were replacing imported garlic very, very slowly. So for several months of the year, even though they'd chosen to not put Chinese garlic on the shelves, they still did carry some imported product from, say, Spain, and Mexico, Argentina. But by making a garlic paste, we were able to provide an Australian garlic offer at a time of the year when there was no Australian garlic bulbs on the shelf at all. So that sort of helped bridge a gap. Years on, Nick Diamantopoulos says what we've achieved in Australia is pretty unique. Places like the Northern Territory and Queensland, for example, they allow you to harvest garlic around September. So you sort of get early season garlic and then we harvest garlic after that 
in October, November, say in New South Wales, and then we sort of harvest garlic in Victoria around November, December, and then we harvest garlic in Mount Gambia, South Australia, for example, around December, January. The late varieties store very well, and so they sort of close the gap, which incidentally is something that many other countries around the world can't do. We harvest garlic in Australia, fresh garlic for about six, seven months of the year, you know, because of our diverse climatic conditions, starting from tropical, subtropical, cool climate, whereas overseas, they really have a four-week harvest window because they've just got one little climatic zone. So it's quite interesting, very unique. What we do in Australia, not many other countries can do. We've got over 300 garlic varieties at the moment, and we're sort of commercialising about a dozen of them, and we're still testing lots of other varieties to try to, again, expand the window of fresh garlic coming in all year round. With global warming, you know, we're going to be very careful because things are sort of changing, and so we've got to be almost a step ahead of it. So we're almost trialling varieties now that can withstand, for example, more disease-resistant, that can tolerate warmer weather, for example, or extremer weather. Um, It's quite, it's never-ending challenges. Queensland is a crucial part of the plan. Andrew Moon of Moon Rocks explains. The Queensland window, certainly the St George window, is a big cog in that wheel. I mean, without it, it's impossible to supply for 12 months Australian product. Being able to breed a variety that works for us in this area and to the specification needed for the consumer and the chain stores, that's been a big thing. And we plant anywhere from February to through to April and, and harvest in September. Sometimes we've harvested earlier than that in August as well. So just that's a bit seasonal. And then we supply for 12 months. We, we had moved in onions and they're not a lot, lot different. They're in the same family as garlic, so the alien group. So we thought we'd give it a go. My uncle was growing it down the Lockyer Valley, so we got a bit of seed from him. And we soon worked out that those varieties didn't work out here. So we had to search for something that did. But the real move into garlic came a little bit later after we'd been mucking around with it for a few years and when, when a major customer approached us to see if we were interested. And that's when we started getting sort of half serious. Like they put that out there and, and it was up to the growers like us to to meet the challenge. And we wanted to because the product that we that we grow is a, a, a way healthier option than the imported stuff. The Australian consumer, they do want to eat Australian product. They just have to have the product there to buy. So it was really up to us to, to meet that challenge. Supermarket chain Coles sells 100% Australian garlic all year round, which it says was driven from demand from consumers to buy local food. At Woolworths, the vast majority of its garlic is sourced from Australian growers as part of its Australian First Fresh Sourcing policy, according to a spokesperson. It says it does source some garlic from overseas to meet consumer needs. Ellie Bradfield with that report. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. Have you noticed new dairy brands popping up in the supermarket aisles? Flip them over and you may see they've been imported from somewhere like New Zealand. 
Price-conscious Australians are consuming more imported dairy than ever, according to Dairy Australia's quarterly Situation and Outlook report. That could mean a price drop for farmers next year, as Australia begins to align with global markets. Analyst Eliza Redfern explains. So our um, Situation Outlook report um, has just come out and um, a a big focus of this is the Dairy Farm Monitor report, which has been showing record profitability um, for a lot of dairy farmers over last season. Um, But we're also seeing that there's high farm gate milk prices this season as well. Um, And on the other end of the supply chain, we're also seeing that there's really strong retail revenues as well. So um, all of these factors are are delivering benefits uh, for the industry at the moment. But there's also emerging risks as well that are starting to weigh heavily um, on the outlook too. So whether that's around um, high production costs um, or Australia's price competitiveness within dairy markets um, or even the economic constraints that are on consumers at the moment as well. So something that we've seen again and again over the last few years is the shrinking milk pool as we do these reports. Mm. Is, that, is that a pattern again this year despite this high profitability? Well, this season we've actually seen some moderate growth over the first couple months. Um, so over the spring conditions that we've been seeing this season, it's been quite different, particularly from a weather perspective um, compared to what we've seen last season. Um, although it's probably worth mentioning that there's been some really um, some large rainfall events in a few regions over the last week or so. But still, with that being said, um, there is still this overarching El Nino event um, that's, that's due to bring those drying conditions across the eastern parts of the country and. And at the same time, we've seen that um, cow culling rates have also reduced quite notably as well. Um, so we've seen some moderate growth in, in production volumes, but keeping in mind, um, you know, the, the impact of El Nino and dry conditions through the second half of the season and, and increased demand for things like supplementary feed and, um, and irrigation water as well, um, that is likely to have some impact. But overall, our forecast at the moment for milk production um, remains steady relative to the volumes that, we've, that we produced last season. Now, something that stood out to me in this report uh, are the numbers around imported products. So mm. you've got in 99, 2000, the year that financial year, uh, imported products accounted for 11% of Australia's dairy consumption, whereas last season 27% of dairy consumed was from overseas. So that's quite an increase. What's going on there? Yeah, well, Australia is becoming a, a much more prominent dairy importer and, you know, the the types of products that Australia is imported from in it, from a dairy perspective um, has, has changed a lot over time. I mean, cheese is still a, a really consistent, um, a consistently large um, uh, product in terms of in terms of the market share of the volume that we're bringing in. Um, but the reality is, is in today's market, we're, we're bringing in a whole, a whole variety of different products. Um, and, and, you know, we've seen that those imported volumes increasing, particularly over, over the last season coming in. And, you know, that, that price difference between Australian dairy products compared to the international products um, has, has had a part to play there too. Um, and so, you know, we see that a lot of those imported products tend to be more incorporated within that, you know, that ingredient, that food service space. Um, but we know that across many different food categories um, that the major retailers have been increasing that offering of imported products over several several years, um, of course. So um, there is that, you know, that increased presence and offering of imported products and, and, and it is putting pressure on, on Australian Australian dairy products as well. And we've seen that both, you know, on, on the global stage and also domestically, of course, within our own market. So, you know, even though we are Australia, we are still impacted by what is happening globally and, and those global factors. 
I mean, personally, I've seen a, a lot more foreign brands on the supermarket shelves in the cheese section, lots of cheeses from New Zealand, which are notably a fair bit cheaper than Australian products. What does this put pressure on uh, milk prices for next season, Eliza? It's a good question, and and you know as we know, there's a lot that that um, that drives that that milk prices picture, um, but it, but it does have a part to play. Um, you know, as I said before, we we are Australia, but we are still impacted by by what's happening globally and, and by global products. So um, you know, it is putting pressure on on our product values, um, and there is you know some implications for for next season's farm gate milk prices when we get to that point um, halfway through next year. Dairy Australia's Eliza Redfern speaking to Meg Powell. Well, that's all for Countrywide this week. I'm Bridget Herman. You can tune into the show wherever you get your podcasts or find more stories about your food and where it comes from on the ABC website. Bye for now. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.